Father, we do ask for your blessing on your word, Lord, that you would give us insight into your truth, into your glory, into your deliverance, into your sovereignty. Lord, bless this time for the honor of your name, we pray. Amen. You know, I, I love Christmas. I love Christmas time. It's you know, just a great time of year. You know, on the whole, people are happy. Even strangers you, you don't know are happy when you're meeting into, when you bump into them. You know, on the whole, people are a bit more relaxed. They're more joyful. Everyone's loosened up a little bit. That's as long as you don't go shopping on December 23rd or 24th. Aside from that, you know, it's this really joyful, happy time of year. It's also the time of year when all the expectations of the year seem to unfold particularly when you start to gather extended family and you bring them all together. Is that not the case? There's so many expectations when people get together, from little things as to say, all right, what am I going to get this person? They're never happy with anything that I ever get this person. Or there's just the pressure to have just a perfect Christmas. You know, or sometimes if there's been some tension in the family over, over, over the last couple months or Over the last year, there's been some tension in the relationship. There's some potential for some things to get a little bit volatile and a little bit explode. You hear the the dad say, come on, guys, we just want to give mom a nice Christmas this year, right? Don't mess it up, right? And there's the expectation of that. We just want everyone to come together, have have a good time, have a good Christmas, and all the different pressures that come with that. But so often, when we gather together with our extended family, things revert back. Things that are, we're reminded of things that happened sometimes years before, sometimes decades before. I mean, it is so frequent for people to feel when they step back and when they're with their extended family, with, or with their parents, with their grandparents, that they were teleported back in time to decades before, to when they were 15 years old. I, I've had people in their 70s say to me, you know what, whenever we get together with my parents at Christmas time, it feels like I'm in high school again. Treated like I'm in high school, the issues in high school, all those different things come together at Christmas. And every year, a part of your holiday tradition is reminding yourself and reminding yourself and re-remembering all the shame that comes in your family. All the tension and disgrace and there's this hope and this yearning that maybe this year it's going to be different. Maybe this year, you know, crazy aunt so-and-so isn't going to make things more difficult for everybody. Maybe this year, the person isn't going to be making the rude comments. Maybe this year, that when you get together with your family, that place where you're supposed to belong, where you're supposed to feel accepted, where everybody just hugs each other and stands around the Christmas tree singing Silent Night, that maybe, just possibly, this year will be the year that it's going to happen. But so often what happens instead is that all of the struggle from the past is refreshed. And the shame from years past, that you get together and, and instead of this, this Norman Rockwell Christmas, what's happened is you're reminded of how inferior and inadequate you are. And we're looking for longing and acceptance. Instead, you feel alienated and rejected. You feel embarrassed and at times humiliated. And when the family sport comes around of deciding who they're going to run the skewer through this year, you know, eventually in the course of a couple days, it's going to be your turn where you're going to be the target of everybody's insults, criticisms, and ridicule as family all gathers together. It's the Christmas time. This is what we do every year, right? This is part of our tradition, unfortunately, for many of us. Well, here this morning, what we're going to look at as we dive into Mary's story 
and the challenge of that first Christmas for her. We're going to begin by looking at the shame in Mary's story. Then we're going to look at what shame looks like in our own stories. And then finally, the truth that supersedes our shame and displaces our shame. Well, let's begin by taking a look at Mary's story in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from, um, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It will be, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived... And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Let's consider all that's going on with Mary, particularly at this time in the time and place of Mary's story. Roman law, who was the, go- the governing body at the time, the Romans, the Roman law had that the minimum age for girls to marry was 12 years old, and the minimum age for boys to marry was 14. And it was typical within Jewish customs at this time for females to be married by the age of 12 and a half. 12 and a half. Now, the way that marriage occurred within Jewish culture at this time was there was a written deed of marriage between the couple and between the the families of the bride and the groom. After there was a written deed, there was an exchange of the bridal price, an exchange of money to the groom. There was a ceremony and intercourse between the couple, and that's what made it a marriage. Now, once the deed of betrothal was written, and once the bridal price was paid, the couple was legally joined together. And they could only be separated by death or by divorce. You see, betrothal, in the biblical sense here in Luke, was much weightier than our form of engagement, because you could only be separated by a divorce if you were betrothed. But the other thing that happened at this time, when someone was betrothed, was that the bride remained in the father's house and under the father's authority until the wedding. And typically, there was a period between the time of betrothal and marriage of about 12 months between those two things. And then finally, marriage, the marriage was marked by wedding, by a wedding, wedding ceremony, and an intercourse between the couple. Now, when we come to the story of Mary, Mary was betrothed. But somehow, Mary became pregnant when she should not have been pregnant. And so it is shocking that a girl who is betrothed is pregnant. 
And even more shocking, that Joseph is not the father, and Joseph knows he is not the father. There's really only one conclusion for how this could be, is that Mary has been with another man. Mary has committed adultery. But Mary has a story to tell, a story that was unheard of in the history of the world. I need something to tell you something. I'm pregnant, but you need to understand I didn't do it. You see, what happened was there was in the night this angel showed up in my room, and he was gleaming white, and he, I was terrified, and he told me that God was going to supernaturally overpower me and become pregnant, and that's, and that's actually what happened. Now, the text goes at length to state several times that Mary was a virgin at this time. And you even hear it in Mary's self-declaration of her puzzlement of this. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Since I'm a virgin, excuse me. And, um, and as she, declared, and she declares this truth in her own puzzlement about how exactly is this going to happen. Now, how hard would it have been to believe this story? How hard? Well, pretty hard. Because when Joseph heard the story, he didn't believe it. He heard the story, he's like, yeah, I, I'm just not buying it. And in fact, it took an angelic intervention for him to change his mind and to, to continue to support Mary and for the marriage to proceed. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, talking about physically, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph, not buying the story, but being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly. And then it took an angelic intervention for Joseph to continue to have Mary as his wife. Consider Mary's shame in this in the moments between the angelic intervention and the shame that was at stake for Mary. You see, Joseph's concern is that he doesn't want to put Mary to public shame, though that would have been somewhat inevitable, because Mary was betrothed but not yet married. And had Joseph divorced her at this point, Mary would have been a single mother, in a culture in which prostitution would have been the only viable means for a woman to support herself on her own. She would have had the shame of being an outcast in her community, a community that was predominantly her own family members. She would have been called any number of names, and her child would have been insulted. And like the woman at the well, she would not have been welcome in the presence of other women for fear that her sin would contaminate them or pollute their children. And all of that was at stake. That was the shame of Mary's story. But what does shame look like for us? What is shame in our own stories? Well, it's helpful to understand, first off, what shame is. You see, shame is not just a problem of what you do, but it's a problem of who you are. You see, guilt is the feeling, the experience of that you did something unacceptable. But shame is the experience of I am unacceptable. Not only did I do something unacceptable, but I myself am unacceptable. It's this shame has the exposure that you're not what you could be. You're not what you you should be and that you fall short in in a significant way. And that gap of how much you fall short of the expectations is the experience of shame. Well, there's different sources of shame that we can have in our life. There's actually, I think, three different areas of that. One, there's shame that can come from something that you did wrong or something that you, you failed to do that you should have done, something wrong that you did. And there's actually a positive aspect to this. 
Because when we do something wrong, shame helps us to realize that we're not being who God made us to be. And in fact, one of God's um, judgments against the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 12, is that they didn't have shame. And he says to them, were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. What is the judgment that's coming against the people of Israel? Is that people were sinning. They're not living as the people of God. They were not being who they were supposed to be. And instead of experiencing shame, they were exalting in it. Say, so what does it matter? And so there's a, a good shame that comes in exposure of, of us not being who God made us to be and not living as God who made us to be. Now, if we, tur- if we trust in Christ... Um, that we should embrace his cleansing. And if you're one here and if you're living in sin or you have an unrepentant sin in your life, yes, there is a part of you, a significant part of you, that, that yes, you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of your sin. But that shame should drive us to Jesus Christ for cleansing and to trust in what Christ has done in washing us clean. But what happens is for most people, they don't do that. Even most Christians is that they don't trust in the cleansing that God gives to them. And so what happens is that the shame of the things that we have done, or things that we were supposed to do that we didn't do, but the shame of the things that we have done gets fused to our identity. It gets fused in the sense of who we are, becomes entrenched, and over the course of our life refuses to leave. Shame is that experience of exposure. Maybe that's an exposure to yourself that you realize that you're not who you present yourself to be. Maybe that shame comes from an exposure before God, that you realize that before God you are not who you think that you are. And then there's a shame that comes with the exposure of doing things that are wrong when that is exposed before other people. Let me give some examples. There is a personal shame that comes, for example, if you're someone who's using pornography. That if you're using pornography, there is an experience of shame there's an experience of shame with that. If you're someone who is binge eating, for example, after you've done so, there is a shame of saying, I can't believe this is who I am. I can't believe I did this. And you're wrestling with this. But that shame goes to a whole nother level if, while you are staring at the computer screen, your daughter is standing behind you, looking over your shoulder, and you realize it, and she says, Daddy, what are you looking at on the computer? Or your grandmother walks in the room and sits there watching you doing that. The shame goes to a whole other level. Or you're someone who's binge eating, you're downing three bags of potato chips and eating a jar of peanut butter, and all of a sudden the guy that you're trying to impress walks in while you're doing that. The shame of that goes with the exposure at that moment. So that's shame that comes from something that you did or, or failed to do. But there's another two more types of shame. There's shame that comes from something wrong that has been done to you. That when you have been sinned against, and you see this type of shame or where this shame particularly gets manifested, you see it in in victims of abuse. There's a shame that people experience, you know, again, illegitimate shame that people experience, particularly for kids if they've grown up in an abusive home and they get removed from that home. There's the shame they experience in the sense of, you know, what happened to them was not their fault. They did not do anything wrong. But what it feels like and what they believe is that, yes, I did do something wrong. That there is actually something wrong with me. 
Because I look at other people, and they don't have the experience that I have. They don't have these wrongs done to them. So therefore, there must be something wrong with me because I see other kids being wanted, but nobody wants me. There's something wrong with who I am, something wrong about me. And for people who have been sinned against, people who are victims of abuse, women who are victims of abuse, there's this deep-seated shame of the sense of, like, I am, I am contaminated. I am unclean. One woman characterized her experience of shame. She said, you know, I feel like there's this black, icky substance inside of me, and that whenever I talk to people, it just comes out and it just contaminates the people around me. And I don't want anybody to know me because I don't want to contaminate anybody else. Was it things that she did? No, it was because of things that were done to her that gave her this experience of shame. But there's a third area, and that's something wrong done, something wrong you did, something wrong done to you. And the third one is something wrong that is associated with you, that is not meeting someone's expectations or a society's or a culture's expectations. An example of this in Scripture is what we saw here was Elizabeth. And you see it throughout Scripture with the, with the barren woman, that there is a strong sense of shame, cultural shame, for barren women. It was a shame that declares, I'm not who I was designed to be. I, I'm, not, I'm not who, I'm not able to do, I'm not able to be the fundamental thing that I'm supposed to be. I'm not able to, to have children, so therefore there is something wrong with me. It is who I am, and I feel as if when I walk into a room, that other women scoff at me, and maybe they do. That other women look down at me or won't associate me because I don't have kids. And maybe that's been your experience. But you see, it's a shame that comes from something associated with you. Not necessarily wrong. In this case, not wrong. But it's a shame that comes with being associated with you. Another example, speaking with a Ch- Chinese seminary student. who's immigrated to the United States with his family at the age of 12. His parents worked hard, sent him to a premier uh, university in our country where he became a Christian. He then decided to go to seminary to become a pastor. And as I was talking with him, I said, how did that go? How did that conversation go at your, with your parents? What was your parents' response to you wanting to become a pastor? He said, what my parents said to me was this, we didn't leave our country and sacrifice everything and pay for your education for you to become a pastor. We didn't do that. You have brought shame upon us because of this. Again, being associated with something. What ha- how does it look like at Christmas time, the associated shame? Well, you know, you get together, families gather together, and you're single, and your you know, relative says to you, well, so, so why don't you just get married? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, why haven't you just gotten married? You get together, and you see family members, and your family members Look at you and say, you know what? Why do you always get such an ugly haircut? It's just every time I see you, your hair just gets worse and worse. Or have you ever thought about losing weight? I mean, like, have you ever, like, realized that this might be an issue for you and that you might I mean, like, your clothes aren't, like, aren't fitting the way that they used to fit you anymore. Have you ever thought about losing weight? Or on the flip side, have you ever thought about putting on a little bit more weight? And all of a sudden, what happens is you get together and there's these things that are associated with you. And what is clear is that you, who you are, is not who they want you to be. That there is not something something wrong with what you have done, but there is something wrong fundamentally with who you are as a person. Well, let's look into this a little bit more, what this experience of shame is like for so many of us. This is an excellent book by Ed Welch, Shame Interrupted. Highly recommend it. He writes, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable, that you are unacceptable. Not that you did something unacceptable, but that you yourself are unacceptable because... 
of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. You feel like an outcast. You don't belong. You feel naked. While everyone else is walking around with their clothes on, you feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen, and what others see is not pretty. You feel unclean. Something is wrong with you. You are dirty. Even worse, you are contaminated. And there is a difference between a being a bit muddy and harboring a deadly, contagious virus. And for so many, Christmas is the time when your shame gets magnified, when all these Different aspects come together just to remind you that you just don't measure up. Not just that you didn't do something, but there is a fundamental problem with who you are, and you are not accepted. That's how shame often looks in our own stories. That was Mary's story of shame, shame in our stories. Well, let's dive into the truth that supersedes our shame. Because when you look at Mary's story, despite the enormous potential for shame, the text actually gives no indication that Mary wrestled with it. And instead, Mary declares the truth that displaces our shame. She declares the truth that supersedes the shame in our lives. This is what she says. She gives this song of praise when she gets together with her cousin Elizabeth. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant." For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Despite Mary, the potential for Mary's shame, she doesn't actually, there's no indication that she actually experienced that. Instead, she declares these truths. Three truths we'll look at briefly that she calls us to do and Scripture calls us to do. First one is this, is that in the midst of our shame is to trust in God's control. Notice what Mary says in response to the angel's declaration. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then in her song she declared, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Who is the Lord? He is the one who is in control. The one who is the creator and sustainer and sovereign ruler over all. The one in whom all of my days are found. The one by whom all of my days were written before any one of them came to be. He is the Lord. He is the one for whom that what he decides happens. That what he speaks comes to be. That for him, the one who what he intends cannot be thwarted. You know, I may not know what will happen tomorrow. I may not understand how this debacle in my life, how this mistake that I've made, how this 
train wreck of my life will work out. I may not understand how this embarrassment or rejection will play out in my life, but he does. But God does, for he is control in control. He is the Lord. And in Mary, you consider her probably 12 and a half years old, being told that she's pregnant with the potential of all the shame, not understanding what's going on, not understanding how all of this is going to work out. But God says this to her and her response is, I am a servant of the Lord. In fact, my soul magnifies the Lord. I trust in the Lord and I will trust in the Lord. May we say the same. Second truth that our shame, the scripture speaks to our shames, is it calls for us to trust in God's control. Secondly, to rejoice in God's deliverance. Notice what Mary says in her declaration. She says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Who is it that needs mercy? Who is it that needs a Savior? Well, it's those who can't save themselves. If I can save myself, I don't need someone to save me. And Mary recognizes, she says, I trust, I rejoice in God, my Savior. For he is the one who saves us, not only from the things we have done, but more profoundly, he saves us from who we are. That he delivers me, not just from the sins that I have committed, But he delivers me from who I am as being a sinner, as one who has broken God's law by not doing the things that I should do, but by not doing the things that I should do, and by intentionally doing the things that I shouldn't do in my thoughts, in my actions, and in my lives. And Mary's declaration is that she is trusting and rejoicing that God is her deliverer, that he is the God who saves her from who she is. And the way that God will do it is through that baby that is in her womb at this time. And the third truth that supersedes our shame is it calls to us to trust in God's control, to rejoice in God's deliverance, and thirdly, thirdly, to delight in God's glory. And to be clear, that is to delight in God's glory that he has given to us. If you look up shame in a thesaurus, what it will tell you that the opposite of shame is is honor and glory. Honor and glory. You see, I think even as Christians, when we think about shame, which I don't think we think about enough, but when we think about shame, we say, okay, God has removed my shame. My shame is gone. Well, that's half the story. Because not only is your shame gone, but honor and glory are bestowed upon you. Honor and glory are given to you and put upon you. So that you are a person who is not simply one who doesn't have shame anymore, but you are a person who is glory has been given to you. Notice how Mary declares this. She says, For he has looked on my humble estate. He has looked on my humble estate. What is she saying? She's saying, listen, who am I? Who am I that I would deserve this? I'm a nobody. I don't deserve this. He has looked upon my humble estate. And she goes on and says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
that the glory that God bestows upon her, and he bestows upon each one of us if you are in Christ Jesus, the glory that God bestows upon us is a glory that does not come from us. It's not a glory that comes with saying, man, that person is so awesome. I mean, that person's a rock star in every area of their life. I mean, if Christians, if there was like a Christian rock star, that person would be it. Because they are awesome in everything that they do. They know how to live for God. They're so godly. They're so great. They're so charismatic. They're so friendly. They're so loving. They're so compassionate. They're so perfect. They are just awesome. But the glory that God gives is a glory that doesn't come from us. And it's a glory that is given to us not because of us. It's not from us. It's not because of us. But get this. It actually is for us. Go figure. It's not from us, it's not because of us, but it is for you. And God bestows this glory upon you. We see this develop further when he says, when Mary continues to to declare, she says, He has shown shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Interesting phrase, is it not? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts in their hearts. Those are the thoughts that when you get together at Christmas time that say, you're not worthy. You're an embarrassment. You're a disgrace. You are despicable. And he says, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What that means, and I think in our experience it works out like this, is not that those things aren't said, but is that those things aren't true. They're not true. And they're not true because of God's glory that has been given upon you. And Mary declares this further. He says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That means that God has lifted them up. He has exalted them. He has honored them. He has glorified them. He has dignified them. Those who might be ashamed in this life because of what they've done, what's been done to them, because of what they're associated with, those who might be ashamed that they're not someone else or something else, what God has done through Christ Jesus is that he has exalted you and he bestows you with glory and honor and dignity. And the amazing truth that Mary declares in her psalm of praise is that no matter who you are, No matter you're someone that everyone wants to be like, no matter you're someone that you feel like you're just a total failure, no matter who you are, nor what you have done, no matter what has been done to you or you have been associated with, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ Jesus, your shame is gone. It is no more. You are now a child of God. That you who were once were dirty and contaminated have been cleansed. That you can join in voice with Kristen singing, I am clean. Because God has changed who you are and has made you a new creation. And the deliverance of God and the glory of God is now yours. And we need to cling to this truth. Because you will not find the glory that displaces your shame through what your family says or doesn't say about you. 
you will not find the glory that displaces your shame and how good of a Christmas it is or how perfect it is. But you will find it in Jesus Christ. And so as Christmas approaches, as families gather together, as maybe the shame of this past year or shame of years long gone by is made fresh again, may Christmas remind you. May your Christmas tradition not to be a remembrance of your shame, but to be a remembrance of Jesus Christ, who is your deliverer and your glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we come before you, yes, with our shame. Lord, we are a people who have not only said wrong things, but as Isaiah declared, I am a man who dwells among a people of unclean lips. That is not just that we have touched contaminated but things, but Lord, that we are contaminated. Lord, that you would be right to turn your face away in disgust. That we, who were your enemies, that is who we were. Lord, through Jesus Christ, you pursued after us in our disgrace. You pursued after us when we were alienated and rejected. You pursued after us in the midst of our shame, became man, born in a manger, to an unwed mother in an unkept stable, died on a cross, bearing the shame of a crucified outcast and criminal and sinner with the shame of the world heaped upon you, dying utterly alone. And Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, you did this great work so that our heads could be lifted up. So that not only would, be, would we be declared forgiven for the wrongs that we have been done, but that we would be innocent and made new creations. And more than that, bestowed with your honor and glory. Lord, there are some here who the shame in their life haunts them and clings to them and sticks to them. And like a bird... In an oil spill, no matter what they do, it just seems to get worse. Lord, would your gospel set them free? Lord, would your glory set them free because of what you have done through Jesus Christ? And Lord, as we go forward and meet family members and see friends and have all these reminders, Lord, would this truth of who we are in you, your child, a new creation, bestowed with glory and honor, Lord, may we cling to that and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.